Hello and welcome to The Mayorzine, a weekly audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage fiction, curated and mostly narrated by me, your host, Chris Mayer. I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas Day yesterday. And even if you don't celebrate the holiday, I still wish you joy and happiness and hope you also had a wonderful day yesterday. So let's talk presents. This all gets put together in advance, so I have no idea what I got this year from my wonderful wife, but I'm sure it's awesome. Aside from an Evanescence Hailstorm concert, I got her a great personalized sleep shirt with our two doggies on it, a Life is Good hat, and the pair of sneakers which have uh, hologram paw prints on them. It says Dog Mom and her name, and I think they're awesome. I'm pretty sure she'll like them, but I have no idea because I recorded this ahead of time. I thought that since this is the day after Christmas, we can theme this around toys and gifts. But not just any toys. Very special ones. Let's start with a bunny. A very special bunny, made of velveteen, and stuffed into a lucky little boy's stocking. Yet another iconic Christmas story, this one has endured much like its titular rabbit and taken on a life of its own. The Velveteen Rabbit, or How Toys Become Real, by Marjorie Williams. There was once a Velveteen Rabbit, and in the beginning he was really splendid. He was fat and bunchy, as a rabbit should be. His coat was spotted brown and white, he had real thread whiskers and his ears were lined with pink sateen. On Christmas morning, when he sat wedged in the top of the boy's stocking, with a sprig of holly between his paws, the effect was charming. There were other things in the stocking, nuts and oranges, and a toy engine, and chocolate almonds, and a clockwork mouse, but the rabbit was quite the best of all. For at least two hours, the boy loved him, and then aunts and uncles came to dinner, and there was a great rustling of tissue paper and unwrapping of parcels, and in the excitement of looking at all the new presents, the velveteen rabbit was forgotten. For a long time, he lived in the toy cupboard or on the nursery floor, and no one thought very much about him. He was naturally shy, and being only made of velveteen, some of the more expensive toys quite snubbed him. The mechanical toys were very superior, and looked down upon everyone else. They were full of modern ideas, and pretended they were real. The model boat, who had lived through two seasons and lost most of his paint, caught the tone from them and never missed an opportunity of referring to his rigging in technical terms. The rabbit could not claim to be a model of anything, for he didn't know that real rabbits existed. He thought they were all stuffed with sawdust like himself, and he understood that sawdust was quite out of date and should never be mentioned in modern circles. Even Timothy, the jointed wooden lion, who was made by the disabled soldiers and should have had broader views, put on airs and pretended he was connected with government. Between them all, the poor little rabbit was made to feel himself very insignificant and commonplace, and the only person who was kind to him at all was the skin horse. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath. 
and most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger and by and by break their mainsprings and pass away, and he knew that they were only toys and would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced like the skin horse understand all about it. What is real? asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Realism how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily, or have sharp edges, or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all. Because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. I suppose you were real, said the rabbit. And then he wished he had not said it, for he thought the skin horse might be sensitive. But the skin horse only smiled. The boy's uncle made me real, he said. That was a great many years ago. But once you are real... You can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. The rabbit sighed. He thought it would be a long time before this magic called real happened to him. He longed to become real, to know what it felt like. And yet the idea of growing shabby and losing his eyes and whiskers was rather sad. He wished that he could become it without these uncomfortable things happening to him. There was a person called Nana who ruled the nursery. Sometimes she took no notice of the playthings lying about, and sometimes, for no reason whatever, she went swooping about like a great wind and hustled them away in cupboards. She called this tidying up, and the playthings all hated it, especially the tin ones. The rabbit didn't mind so much, for wherever he was thrown he came down soft. One evening, when the boy was going to bed, he couldn't find the china dog that always slept with him. Nana was in a hurry, and it was too much trouble to hunt for china dogs at bedtime, so she simply looked about her, and seeing that the toy cupboard door stood open, she made a swoop. Here, she said, take your old bunny, he'll do to sleep with you. And she dragged the rabbit out by one ear and put him into the boy's arms. That night, and for many nights after, the velveteen rabbit slept in the boy's bed. At first he found it rather uncomfortable, for the boy hugged him very tight, 
and sometimes he rolled over on him, and sometimes he pushed him so far under the pillow that the rabbit could scarcely breathe. And he missed, too, those long moonlight hours in the nursery, when all the house was silent, and his talks with the skin horse. But very soon he grew to like it, for the boy used to talk to him, and made nice tunnels for him under the bedclothes that he said were like the burrows the real rabbits lived in. And they had splendid games together, in whispers, when Nana had gone away to her supper and left the nightlight burning on the mantelpiece. And when the boy dropped off to sleep, the rabbit would snuggle down close under his little warm chin and dream, with the boy's hands clasped close round him all night long. And so time went on, and the little rabbit was very happy, so happy that he never noticed how his beautiful velveteen fur was getting shabbier and shabbier, and his tail becoming unsewn, and all the pink rubbed off his nose where the boy had kissed him. Spring came, and they had long days in the garden, for wherever the boy went, the rabbit went too. He had rides in the wheelbarrow, and picnics on the grass, and lovely fairy huts built for him under the raspberry canes behind the flower border. And once, when the boy was called away suddenly to go out to tea, the rabbit was left out on the lawn until long after dusk, and Nana had to come and look for him with the candle because the boy couldn't go to sleep unless he was there. He was wet through with the dew and quite earthy from diving into the burrows the boy had made for him in the flower bed, and Nana grumbled as she rubbed him off with the corner of her apron. You must have your old bunny, she said. Fancy all that fuss for a toy. The boy sat up in bed and stretched out his hands. Give me my bunny, he said. You mustn't say that. He isn't a toy. He's real. When the little rabbit heard that, he was happy, for he knew that what the skin horse had said was true at last. The nursery magic had happened to him, and he was a toy no longer. He was real. The boy himself had said it. That night he was almost too happy to sleep, and so much love stirred in his little sawdust heart that it almost burst. And into his boot-buttoned eyes that had long ago lost their polish, there came a look of wisdom and beauty, so that even Nana noticed it next morning when she picked him up and said, I declare if that old bunny hasn't got quite a knowing expression. That was a wonderful summer. Near the house where they lived, there was a wood, and in the long June evenings the boy liked to go there after tea to play. He took the velveteen rabbit with him, and before he wandered off to pick flowers or play at brigands among the trees, he always made the rabbit a little nest somewhere among the bracken, where he would be quite cozy, for he was a kind-hearted little boy, and he liked Bunny to be comfortable. One evening... While the rabbit was lying there alone, watching the ants that ran to and fro between his velvet paws in the grass, he saw two strange beings creep out of the tall bracken near him. They were rabbits like himself, but quite furry and brand new. They must have been very well made, for their seams didn't show at all, and they changed shape in a queer way when they moved. One minute they were long and thin, and the next minute fat and bunchy, instead of always staying the same like he did. Their feet padded softly on the ground, and they crept quite close to him, twitching their noses, while the rabbit stared hard to see which side the clockwork stuck out, for he knew that people who jump generally have something to wind them up. But he couldn't see it. They were evidently a new kind of rabbit altogether. They stared at him, and the little rabbit stared back, and all the time their noses twitched, 
Why don't you get up and play with us? One of them asked. I don't feel like it, said the rabbit, for he didn't want to explain that he had no clockwork. Oh, said the furry rabbit. It's as easy as anything. And he gave a big hop sideways and stood on his hind legs. I don't believe you can, he said. I can, said the little rabbit. I can jump higher than anything. He meant when the boy threw him, but of course he didn't want to say so. Can you hop on your hind legs? asked the furry rabbit. That was a dreadful question, for the velveteen rabbit had no hind legs at all. The back of him was made all in one piece, like a pincushion. He sat still in the bracken and hoped that the other rabbits wouldn't notice. I don't want to, he said again. But the wild rabbits have very sharp eyes, and this one stretched out his neck and looked. He hasn't got any hind legs, he called out. Fancy a rabbit without any hind legs. And he began to laugh. I have, cried the little rabbit. I have got hind legs. I am sitting on them. Then stretch them out and show me, like this, said the wild rabbit. And he began to whirl round and dance, till the little rabbit got quite dizzy. I don't like dancing, he said. I'd rather sit still. But all the while he was longing to dance, for a funny new tickly feeling ran through him, and he felt he would give anything in the world to be able to jump about like these rabbits did. The strange rabbit stopped dancing and came quite close. He came so close this time that his long whiskers brushed the velveteen rabbit's ear, and then he wrinkled his nose suddenly and flattened his ears and jumped backwards. He doesn't smell right, he exclaimed. He isn't a rabbit at all. He isn't real. I am real, said the little rabbit. I am real. The boy said so. And he nearly began to cry. Just then there was a sound of footsteps, and the boy ran past near them. And with a stamp of feet and a flash of white tails, the two strange rabbits disappeared. Come back and play with me, called the little rabbit. Oh, do come back. I know I am real. But there was no answer. Only the little ants ran to and fro, and the bracken swayed gently where the two strangers had passed. The velveteen rabbit was all alone. Oh, dear, he thought. Why did they run away like that? Why couldn't they stop and talk to me? For a long time he lay very still, watching the bracken and hoping that they would come back. But they never returned, and presently the sun sank lower and the little white moths fluttered out and the boy came and carried him home. Weeks passed, and the little rabbit grew very old and shabby, but the boy loved him just as much. He loved him so hard that he loved all his whiskers off, and the pink lining to his ears turned gray, and his brown spots faded. He even began to lose his shape, and he scarcely looked like a rabbit anymore, except to the boy. To him he was always beautiful, and that was all that the little rabbit cared about. He didn't mind how he looked to other people, because the nursery magic had made him real, and when you are real, shabbiness doesn't matter. And then, one day, the boy was ill. His face grew very flushed, and he talked in his sleep, and his little body was so hot that it burned the rabbit when he held him close. Strange people came and went in the nursery, and a light burned all night, and through it all the little velveteen rabbit lay there, hidden from sight under the bedclothes and he never stirred, for he was afraid that if they found him, someone might take him away, and he knew that the boy needed him. It was a long, weary time, 
for the boy was too ill to play, and the little rabbit found it rather dull with nothing to do all day long. But he snuggled down patiently and looked forward to the time when the boy should be well again, and they would go out in the garden amongst the flowers and the butterflies and play splendid games in the raspberry thicket like they used to. All sorts of delightful things he planned, and while the boy lay half asleep, he crept up close to the pillow and whispered them in his ear. And presently the fever turned, and the boy got better. He was able to sit up in bed and look at picture books, while the little rabbit cuddled close at his side. And one day they let him get up and dress. It was a bright sunny morning, and the windows stood wide open. They had carried the boy out onto the balcony, wrapped in a shawl, and the little rabbit lay tangled up among the bedclothes, thinking. The boy was going to the seaside tomorrow. Everything was arranged, and now it only remained to carry out the doctor's orders. They talked about it all while the little rabbit lay under the bedclothes, with just his head peeping out, and listened. The room was to be disinfected, and all the books and toys that the boy had played with in bed must be burnt. Hurrah, thought the little rabbit, tomorrow we shall go to the seaside. For the boy had often talked of the seaside, and he wanted very much to see the big waves coming in, and the tiny crabs, and the sand castles. Just then Nana caught sight of him. How about this old bunny? she asked. That, said the doctor, why it's a mass of scarlet fever germs. Burn it at once. What? Nonsense, get him a new one. He mustn't have that any more. And so the little rabbit was put into a sack with the old picture books and a lot of rubbish and carried out to the end of the garden behind the fowl house. That was a fine place to make a bonfire, only the gardener was too busy just then to attend to it. He had the potatoes to dig and the green peas to gather, but next morning he promised to come quite early and burn the whole lot. That night the boy slept in a different bedroom and he had a new bunny to sleep with him. It was a splendid bunny, all white plush with real glass eyes, but the boy was too excited to care very much about it, for tomorrow he was going to the seaside, and that in itself was such a wonderful thing that he could think of nothing else. And while the boy was asleep, dreaming of the seaside, the little rabbit lay among the old picture books in the corner behind the fowl house, and he felt very lonely. The sack had been left untied, and so by wriggling a bit he was able to get his head through the opening and look out. He was shivering a little, for he had always been used to sleeping in a proper bed, and by this time his coat had worn so thin and threadbare from hugging that it was no longer any protection to him. Nearby he could see the thicket of raspberry canes, growing tall and close like a tropical jungle, in whose shadow he had played with the boy on bygone mornings. He thought of those long sunlit hours in the garden, how happy they were, and a great sadness came over him. He seemed to see them all pass before him, each more beautiful than the other. The fairy huts in the flower bed, the quiet evenings in the wood when he lay in the bracken and the little ants ran over his paws. The wonderful day when he first knew that he was real. He thought of the skinned horse, so wise and gentle, and all that he had told him. Of what use was it to be loved and lose one's beauty and become real if it all ended like this? and a tear, a real tear, trickled down his little shabby velvet nose that fell to the ground. And then a strange thing happened, for where the tear had fallen a flower grew out of the ground, a mysterious flower, not at all like any that grew in the garden. 
It had slender green leaves the color of emeralds, and in the center of the leaves a blossom like a golden cup. It was so beautiful that the little rabbit forgot to cry, and just lay there watching it. And presently the blossom opened, and out of it there stepped a fairy. She was quite the loveliest fairy in the whole world. Her dress was of pearl and dewdrops, and there were flowers round her neck and in her hair, and her face was like the most perfect flower of all. And she came close to the little rabbit and gathered him up in her arms and kissed him on his velveteen nose that was all damp from crying. Little rabbit, she said, don't you know who I am? The rabbit looked up at her, and it seemed to him that he had seen her face before, but he couldn't think where. I am the nursery magic fairy, she said. I take care of all the playthings that the children have loved. When they are old and worn out and the children don't need them anymore, then I come and take them away with me and turn them into real. Wasn't I real before? asked the little rabbit. You were real to the boy, the fairy said, because he loved you. Now you shall be real to everyone. And she held the little rabbit close in her arms and flew with him into the wood. It was light now, for the moon had risen. All the forest was beautiful, and the fronds of the bracken shone like frosted silver. In the open glade between the tree trunks, the wild rabbits danced with their shadows on the velvet grass. But when they saw the fairy, they all stopped dancing and stood round in a ring to stare at her. I've brought you a new playfellow, the fairy said. You must be very kind to him and teach him all he needs to know in Rabbitland, for he is going to live with you forever and ever. And she kissed the little rabbit again and put him down on the grass. Run and play, little rabbit, she said. But the little rabbit sat quite still for a moment and never moved. For when he saw all the wild rabbits dancing around him, he suddenly remembered about his hind legs, and he didn't want them to see that he was made all in one piece. He did not know that when the fairy kissed him that last time, she had changed him altogether. And he might have sat there a long time, too shy to move, if just then something hadn't tickled his nose, and before he thought what he was doing, he lifted his hind toe to scratch it. And he found that he actually had hind legs. Instead of dingy velveteen, he had brown fur, soft and shiny. His ears twitched by themselves, and his whiskers were so long that they brushed the grass. He gave one leap, and the joy of using those hind legs was so great that he went springing about the turf on them, jumping sideways and whirling round as the others did. And he grew so excited that when at last he did stop to look for the fairy, she had gone. He was a real rabbit at last, at home with the other rabbits. Autumn passed, and winter, and in the spring, when the days grew warm and sunny, the boy went out to play in the wood behind the house. And while he was playing, two rabbits crept out from the bracken and peeped at him. One of them was brown all over, but the other had strange markings under his fur, as though long ago he had been spotted, and the spots still showed through. And about his soft little nose and his round black eyes, there was something familiar, so that the boy thought to himself, why, he looks just like my old bunny that was lost when I had scarlet fever. But he never knew that it really was his own bunny, come back to look at the child who had first helped him to be real.
Hans Christian Andersen needs no introduction. His stories have been cherished for years. The Emperor's New Clothes, The Little Match Girl, Thumbelina, The Princess and the Pea, The Ugly Duckling, and, of course, The Little Mermaid. This next story also falls into those ranks. It's also about a toy, a very special tin soldier. The Steadfast Tin Soldier by Hans Christian Andersen. There were, once upon a time, five and twenty tin soldiers, all brothers, as they were made out of the same old tin spoon. Their uniform was red and blue, and they shouldered their guns and looked straight in front of them. The first words that they heard in this world, when the lid of the box in which they lay was taken off, were, Hurrah, tin soldiers! This was exclaimed by a little boy, clapping his hands. They had been given to him because it was his birthday, and now he began setting them out on the table. Each soldier was exactly like the other in shape, except just one, who had been made last when the tin had run short. But there he stood as firmly on his one leg as the others did on two, and he is the one that became famous. There were many other playthings on the table on which they were being set out, but the nicest of all was a pretty little castle made of cardboard, with windows through which you could see into the rooms. In front of the castle stood some little trees surrounding a tiny mirror which looked like a lake. Wax swans were floating about and reflecting themselves in it. That was all very pretty, but the most beautiful thing was a little lady who stood in the open doorway. She was cut out of paper, but she had on a dress of the finest muslin, with a scarf of narrow blue ribbon around her shoulders, fastened in the middle with a glittering rose made of gold paper, which was as large as her head. The little lady was stretching out both her arms, for she was a dancer, and was lifting up one leg so high in the air that the tin soldier couldn't find it anywhere and thought that she, too, had only one leg. That's the wife for me, he thought, but she is so grand and lives in a castle, whilst I have only a box with four and twenty others. This is no place for her, but I must make her acquaintance. Then he stretched himself out behind a snuff-box that lay on the table. From thence he could watch the dainty little lady, who continued to stand on one leg without losing her balance. When the night came, all the other tin soldiers went into their box, and the people of the house went to bed. Then the toys began to play at visiting, dancing, and fighting. The tin soldiers rattled in their box, for they wanted to be out too, but they could not raise the lid. The nutcrackers played at leapfrog, and the slate pencil ran about the slate. There was such a noise that the canary woke up and began to talk to them, in poetry too. The only two who did not stir from their places were the tin soldier and the little dancer. She remained on tiptoe, with both arms outstretched. He stood steadfastly on his one leg, never moving his eyes from her face. The clock struck twelve, and crack! Off flew the lid of the snuff-box. But there was no snuff inside, only a little black imp. That was the beauty of it. Hello, tin soldier, said the imp. Don't look at things that aren't intended for the likes of you. But the tin soldier took no notice, 
and seemed not to hear. Very well, wait till tomorrow, said the imp. When it was morning and the children had got up, the tin soldier was put in the window. And whether it was the wind or the little black imp, I don't know. But all at once the window flew open, and out fell the little tin soldier, head over heels, from the third-story window. That was a terrible fall, I can tell you. He landed on his head with his leg in the air, his gun being wedged between two paving stones. The nursery maid and the little boy came down at once to look for him. But though they were so near him that they almost trod on him, they did not notice him. If the tin soldier had only called out, Here I am! They must have found him. But he did not think it fitting for him to cry out, because he had on his uniform. Soon it began to drizzle. Then the drops came faster, and there was a regular downpour. When it was over, two little street boys came along. Just look! cried one. Here is a tin soldier. He shall sail up and down in a boat. So they made a little boat out of newspaper, put the tin soldier in it, and made him sail up and down the gutter. Both the boys ran along beside him, clapping their hands. What great waves there were in the gutter, and what a swift current! The paper boat tossed up and down, and in the middle of the stream it went so quick that the tin soldier trembled. But he remained steadfast, showed no emotion, looked straight in front of him, shouldering his gun. All at once the boat passed under a long tunnel that was as dark as his box had been. Where can I be coming now? he wondered. Oh, dear, this is the black imp's fault. Ah, if only the little lady were sitting beside me in the boat, it might be twice as dark for all I should care. Suddenly there came along a great water rat that lived in the tunnel. Have you a passport? said the rat. Out with your passport! But the tin soldier was silent and grasped his gun more firmly. The boat sped on and the rat behind it. Oh, how he showed his teeth as he cried to the chips of wood and straw, Hold him! Hold him! He has not paid the toll! He has not shown his passport! But the current became swifter and stronger. The tin soldier could already see daylight where the tunnel ended. But in his ears there sounded a roaring enough to frighten any brave man. Only think, at the end of the tunnel the gutter discharged itself into a great canal. That would be just as dangerous for him as it would be for us to go down a waterfall. Now he was so near to it that he could not hold on any longer. On went the boat, the poor tin soldier keeping himself as stiff as he could. No one should say of him afterwards that he had flinched. The boat whirled three, four times round and became filled to the brim with water. It began to sink. The tin soldier was standing up to his neck in water, and deeper and deeper sank the boat, and softer and softer grew the paper. Now the water was over his head. He was thinking of the pretty little dancer, whose face he should never see again. And there sounded in his ears, over and over again, Forward, forward, soldier bold, death's before thee, grim and cold. The paper came in two, and the soldier fell. But at that moment he was swallowed by a great fish. Oh, how dark it was inside, even darker than in the tunnel, and it was really very close quarters. But there the steadfast little tin soldier lay full length, shouldering his gun. Up and down swam the fish. Then he made the most dreadful contortions and became suddenly quite still. Then it was as if a flash of lightning had passed through him. 
the daylight streamed in, and a voice exclaimed, Why, here is the little tin soldier! The fish had been caught, taken to market, sold, and brought into the kitchen, where the cook had cut it open with a great knife. She took up the soldier between her finger and thumb and carried him into the room, where everyone wanted to see the hero who had been found inside a fish. But the tin soldier was not at all proud. They put him on the table, and know but what strange things do happen in this world, the tin soldier was in the same room in which he had been before. He saw the same children and the same toys on the table. And there was the same grand castle with the pretty little dancer. She was still standing on one leg with the other high in the air. She, too, was steadfast. That touched the tin soldier. He was nearly going to shed tin tears, but that would not have been fitting for a soldier. He looked at her, but she said nothing. All at once, one of the little boys took up the tin soldier and threw him into the stove, giving no reasons. But doubtless the little black imp in the snuff-box was at the bottom of this, too. There the tin soldier lay and felt a heat that was truly terrible. But whether he was suffering from actual fire or from the ardor of his passion, he did not know. All his color had disappeared. Whether this had happened on his travels or whether it was the result of trouble, who can say? He looked at the little lady, she looked at him, and he felt that he was melting but he remained steadfast with his gun at his shoulder. Suddenly a door opened, the draft caught up the little dancer, and off she flew like a sylph to the tin soldier in the stove, burst into flames, and that was the end of her. Then the tin soldier melted down into a little lump, and when next morning the maid was taking out the ashes, she found him in the shape of a heart. There was nothing left of the little dancer but her gilt rose, burnt as black as a cinder. I have one more name for you that you should recognize. L. Frank Baum. Known primarily for his Oz books, he also wrote short stories. This one isn't quite about a toy, but it's close enough. It also showcases the magical whimsy that Baum is known for. There's no love in this one, I'm afraid, but it does serve to emphasize that value from the other two stories. No dogs were harmed during the recording of this story, glass or otherwise. The Glass Dog by L. Frank Baum An accomplished wizard once lived on the top floor of a tenement house and passed his time in thoughtful study and studious thought. What he didn't know about wizardry was hardly worth knowing, for he possessed all the books and recipes of all the wizards who had lived before him, and moreover he had invented several wizard mints himself. This admirable person would have been completely happy but for the numerous interruptions to his studies caused by folk who came to consult him about their troubles in which he was not interested, and by the loud knocks of the iceman, the milkman, the baker's boy, the laundryman, and the peanut woman. He never dealt with any of these people, but they rapped at his door every day to see him about this or that or to try to sell him their wares. 
just when he was most deeply interested in his books, were engaged in watching the bubbling of a cauldron that would come a knock at his door. And after sending the intruder away, he always found he had lost his train of thought or ruined his compound. At length, these interruptions aroused his anger, and he decided he must have a dog to keep people away from his door. He didn't know where to find a dog, but in the next room lived a poor glassblower with whom he had a slight acquaintance. So he went into the man's apartment and asked, Where can I find a dog? What sort of a dog? inquired the glassblower. A good dog. One that will bark at people and drive them away. One that will be no trouble to keep and won't expect to be fed. One that has no fleas and is neat in his habits. One that will obey me when I speak to him. In short, a good dog, said the wizard. Such a dog is hard to find, returned the glassblower, who was busy making a blue glass flower pot with a pink glass rosebush in it, having green glass leaves and yellow glass roses. The wizard watched him thoughtfully. Why cannot you blow me a dog out of glass? he asked presently. I can declared the glassblower, but it would not bark at people, you know. Oh, I'll fix that easily enough, replied the other. If I could not make a glass dog bark, I would be a mighty poor wizard. Very well. If you can use a glass dog, I'll be pleased to blow one for you. Only you must pay for my work. Certainly, agreed the wizard. But I have none of that horrid stuff you call money. You must take some of my wares in exchange. The glassblower considered the matter for a moment. Could you give me something to cure my rheumatism? He asked. Oh, yes, easily. Then it's a bargain. I'll start the dog at once. What color of glass shall I use? Pink is a pretty color, said the wizard. And it's unusual for a dog, isn't it? Very, answered the glassblower. But it shall be pink. So the wizard went back to his studies, and the glass blower began to make the dog. Next morning he entered the wizard's room with the glass dog under his arm and set it carefully upon the table. It was a beautiful pink in color, with a fine coat of spun glass, and about its neck was twisted a blue glass ribbon. Its eyes were specks of black glass and sparkled intelligently, as do many of the glass eyes worn by men. The wizard expressed himself pleased with the glassblower's skill and at once handed him a small vial. This will cure your rheumatism, he said. But the vial is empty, protested the glassblower. Oh no, there is one drop of liquid in it, was the wizard's reply. Will one drop cure my rheumatism? inquired the glassblower in wonder. Most certainly. That is a marvelous remedy. The one drop contained in the vial will cure instantly any kind of disease ever known to humanity. Therefore, it is especially good for rheumatism. But guard it well, for it is the only drop of its kind in the world, and I've forgotten the recipe. Thank you, said the glassblower, and went back to his room. Then the wizard cast a whizzy spell and mumbled several very learned words in the wizardese language over the glass dog, whereupon the little animal first wagged its tail from side to side, then winked its left eye knowingly, and at last began barking in a most frightful manner. 
That is, when you stop to consider the noise came from a pink glass dog. There is something almost astonishing in the magic arts of wizards. Unless, of course, you know how to do the things yourself when you are not expected to be surprised at them. The wizard was as delighted as a schoolteacher at the success of his spell, although he was not astonished. Immediately, he placed the dog outside his door, where it would bark at anyone who dared to knock and so disturb the studies of its master. The glassblower, on returning to his room, decided not to use the one drop of wizard cure-all just then. My rheumatism is better today, he reflected. And I will be wise to save the medicine for a time when I am very ill, when it will be of more service to me. So he placed the vial in his cupboard and went to work blowing more roses out of glass. Presently, he happened to think the medicine might not keep, so he started to ask the wizard about it. But when he reached the door, the glass dog barked so fiercely that he dared not knock and returned in great haste to his own room. Indeed, the poor man was quite upset at so unfriendly a reception from the dog he had himself so carefully and skillfully made. The next morning, as he read his newspaper, he noticed an article stating that the beautiful Miss Midas, the richest young lady in town, was very ill, and the doctors had given up hope of her recovery. The glassblower, although miserably poor, hard-working, and homely of feature, was a man of ideas. He suddenly recollected his precious medicine, and determined to use it to better advantage than relieving his own ills. He dressed himself in his best clothes, brushed his hair and combed his whiskers, washed his hands and tied his necktie, blackened his hose and sponged his vest, and then put the vial of magic cure-all in his pocket. Next he locked his door, went downstairs, and walked through the streets to the grand mansion where the wealthy Miss Midas resided. The butler opened the door and said, No soap, no chromos, no vegetables, no hair oil, no books, no baking powder. My young lady is dying, and we're well supplied for the funeral. The glassblower was grieved at being taken for a peddler. My friend, he began proudly, but the butler interrupted him, saying, no tombstones either. There's a family graveyard and the monument's built. The graveyard won't be needed if you will permit me to speak, said the glassblower. No doctors, sir. They've given up my young lady and she's given up the doctors, continued the butler calmly. I'm no doctor, returned the glassblower. Nor are the others. But what is your errand? I called to cure your young lady by means of a magical compound. Step in, please, and take a seat in the hall. I'll speak to the housekeeper, said the butler, more politely. So he spoke to the housekeeper, and the housekeeper mentioned the matter to the steward, and the steward consulted the chef, and the chef kissed the lady's maid and sent her to see the stranger. Thus are the very wealthy hedged around with ceremony, even when dying. When the lady's maid heard from the glassblower that he had a medicine which would cure her mistress, she said, I'm glad you came. But, said he, if I restore your mistress to health, she must marry me. I'll make inquiries and see if she's willing, answered the maid, and went at once to consult Miss Midas. The young lady did not hesitate an instant. I'd marry any old thing rather than die, she cried. Bring him here at once. So the glassblower came, poured the magic drop into a little water, gave it to the patient, and the next minute Miss Midas was as well as she had ever been in her life. Dear me, she exclaimed, 
I've an engagement at the Fritter's reception tonight. Bring my pearl-colored silk, Marie, and I will begin my toilet at once. And don't forget to cancel the order for the funeral flowers and your mourning gown. But, Miss Midas, remonstrated the glassblower, who stood by, you promised to marry me if I cured you. I know, said the young lady, but we must have time to make proper announcement in the society papers and have the wedding cards engraved. Call tomorrow and we'll talk it over. The glassblower had not impressed her favorably as a husband, and she was glad to find an excuse for getting rid of him for a time, and she did not want to miss the fritter's reception. Yet the man went home filled with joy, for he thought his stratagem had succeeded, and he was about to marry a rich wife who would keep him in luxury forever afterward. The first thing he did on reaching his room was to smash his glassblowing tools and throw them out of the window and he sat down to figure out ways of spending his wife's money. The following day, he called upon Miss Midas, who was reading a novel and eating chocolate creams as happily as if she had never been ill in her life. Where did you get the magic compound that cured me? she asked. From a learned wizard, said he. And then, thinking it would interest her, he told how he had made the glass dog for the wizard, and how it barked and kept everybody from bothering him. How delightful, she said. I've always wanted a glass dog that could bark. But there is only one in the world, he answered, and it belongs to the wizard. You must buy it for me, said the lady. The wizard cares nothing for money, replied the glassblower. Then you must steal it for me, she retorted. I can never live happily another day unless I have a glass dog that can bark. The glassblower was much distressed at this, but said he would see what he could do, for a man should always try to please his wife, and Miss Midas has promised to marry him within a week. On his way home, he purchased a heavy sack, and when he passed the wizard's door and the pink glass dog ran out to bark at him, he threw the sack over the dog, tied the opening with a piece of twine, and carried him away to his own room. The next day, he sent the sack by a messenger boy to Miss Midas with his compliments and later in the afternoon he called upon her in person, feeling quite sure he would be received with gratitude for stealing the dog she so greatly desired. But when he came to the door and the butler opened it, what was his amazement to see the glass dog rush out and begin barking at him furiously. Call off your dog, he shouted in terror. I can't, sir, answered the butler. My young lady has ordered the glass dog to bark whenever you call here. You'd better look out, sir he added, for if it bites you, you may have glassophobia. This so frightened the poor glassblower that he went away hurriedly. But he stopped at a drugstore and put his last dime in the telephone box so he could talk to Miss Midas without being bitten by the dog. Give me Pelf 6742, he called. Hello, what is it? said a voice. I want to speak with Miss Midas, said the glassblower. Presently, a sweet voice said, this is Miss Midas. What is it? Why have you treated me so cruelly and set the glass dog on me? Asked the poor fellow. Well, to tell the truth, said the lady, I don't like your looks. Your cheeks are pale and baggy. Your hair is coarse and long. Your eyes are small and red. Your hands are big and rough, and you are bow-legged. But I can't help my looks, pleaded the glassblower, and you really promised to marry me. If you were better looking, I'd keep my promise, she returned. But under the circumstances, you are no fit mate for me, and unless you keep away from my mansion, I shall set my glass dog on you. 
and she dropped the phone and would have nothing more to say. The miserable glassblower went home with a heart bursting with disappointment and began tying a rope to the bedpost by which to hang himself. Someone knocked at the door, and upon opening it, he saw the wizard. I've lost my dog, he announced. Have you indeed, replied the glassblower, tying a knot in the rope. Yes, someone has stolen him. That's too bad, declared the glassblower, indifferently. You must make me another, said the wizard. But I cannot. I've thrown away my tools. Then what shall I do? asked the wizard. I do not know, unless you offer a reward for the dog. But I have no money, said the wizard. Offer some of your compounds, then, suggested the glassblower, who was making a noose in the rope for his head to go through. The only thing I can spare, replied the wizard thoughtfully, is a beauty powder. What? cried the glassblower, throwing down the rope. Have you really such a thing? Yes, indeed. Whoever takes the powder will become the most beautiful person in the world. If you offer that as a reward, said the glassblower eagerly, I'll try to find the dog for you, for above everything else I long to be beautiful. But I warn you, the beauty will only be skin deep, said the wizard. That's all right, replied the happy glassblower. When I lose my skin, I shan't care to remain beautiful. Then tell me where to find my dog, and you shall have the powder, promised the wizard. So the glassblower went out and pretended to search, and by and by he returned and said, I've discovered the dog. You will find him in the mansion of Miss Midas. The wizard went at once to see if this were true, and sure enough, the glass dog ran out and began barking at him. Then the wizard spread out his hands and chanted a magic spell which sent the dog fast asleep when he picked him up and carried him to his own room on the top floor of the tenement house. Afterward, he carried the beauty powder to the glassblower as a reward, and the fellow immediately swallowed it and became the most beautiful man in the world. The next time he called upon Miss Midas, there was no dog to bark at him, and when the young lady saw him, she fell in love with his beauty at once. If only you were a count or a prince, she sighed, I'd willingly marry you. But I am a prince, he answered, the prince of dog blowers. Ah, said she, then if you are willing to accept an allowance of four dollars a week, I'll order the wedding cards engraved. The man hesitated. But when he thought of the rope hanging from his bedpost, he consented to the terms. So they were married, and the bride was very jealous of her husband's beauty and led him a dog's life. So he managed to get into debt and made her miserable in turn. As for the glass dog, the wizard set him barking again by means of his wizardness and put him outside his door. I suppose he is there yet, and am rather sorry for I should like to consult the wizard about the moral to this story. And that wraps up the final issue of Volume 1 and of 2021. I decided to format this podcast like an actual magazine, 
So every three months constitutes one volume of the Marazine, which I will package up in an omnibus edition and make it available wherever audiobooks are sold. Each omnibus will have the Patreon bonus stories in them, as well as a longer bonus story recorded specifically for the omnibus. So if you're not a patron, it may be worth it to pick it up. I can't say how long it'll take for each omnibus to be published, since all the marketplaces go at their own paces and you're kind of at their mercy once you've done distributing. Audible usually takes the longest. Be sure that I'll announce it on the Marazine when each omnibus is finally available. As of this writing, I only have about most of January planned, so we'll discover it more or less together. I write these things out about a month in advance, although I usually do some editing later on. I've been busy planning Volume 2, and I should have it done in about a week or so. Hopefully I'll be able to bring you more guest narrators. Actually, I know I will, because I've got two lined up already, and they are superstars. And that's very important to me, because A, less work for me, and B, I want this to be a true audio magazine and not just the Chris Mayer Show, even though my name is on the title. I know I want to keep playing with the format a little more. For instance, in January, I'll be serializing a longer story between a few issues. If you have suggestions, or would like to hear something or someone in particular, please drop by the Patreon and make a post or leave some comments. Following the Marazine on the Patreon is free, and all of the episode posts are open to the public. You don't have to be a patron to interact with the show although I believe you do need to have a Patreon account in order to leave comments. And speaking of the Patreon, if you like the podcast, be sure to check it out if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so, and leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Marazine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. This production is copyright 2021 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next year.